with me and then uh, pray with me and then we'll start our study this morning. Father, we know that you are a great God. We know that you are a gracious God. We know that your grace is scandalous. It is shocking. It is hard for us to even sometimes comprehend that. The powerful picture on display this morning, I hope, will permeate our lives. And we would see with spiritual eyes and understand the good news. We know, Lord, that the gospel of John was given to us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing, we might have life in his name. Pray this morning that we would, if we are here in unbelief, that we would believe. And if we are here struggling in our belief, we would be firmed up. And if we are here this morning believing, trusting, that we would have a greater understanding, a greater knowledge, a greater love for Christ and what he's done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. This week, uh, as we're looking at this, like I said, we'll look at the first 42 verses. And we are going to see Jesus interact with a woman, but not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. And not just any Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman who's an outcast, even among her people. The thought that Jesus would speak to her is shocking that he would address her, that he would talk with her, even understanding, even if he didn't have an understanding of who she was, the idea that he would be doing so would be shocking. But with his knowledge, as we will see of her past and her present, we're still amazed by what he does here. It's interesting, if you look at chapter 3, if you were with us, or maybe you weren't, if you, if you know the story of Nicodemus, uh, you know that these two stories are, in many ways, or these two people are the exact opposite. One author noted, John may intend a contrast between the woman of this narrative and Nicodemus of chapter 3. He was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence despised, capable only of a folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. But both needed Jesus. Jesus knows that the moral and the immoral both need him. Jesus will show us today what it means to embody grace and truth. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of you here today may say, Well, I feel like this woman. I feel like the woman that is presented in the story, if she is an immoral woman, you could sign me my name next to hers. And you might ask yourself, like, what would Jesus say to me? How would Jesus respond to me? 
And I would just think it's important for you to understand that Jesus draws close to sinners. The brokenhearted, those who are in great need. He saves sinners like you and me. Sometimes those sinners, as I mentioned, are like Nicodemus, who seem to have done everything right. And sometimes those sinners are those who look like they've done everything wrong. But they both need Him. John Piper states, When we see Jesus later in the story, knowing how many husbands this woman has had, we get the definite impression that nothing is happening happening by accident here. Jesus is seeking this woman's salvation, knowing everything about her. When Jesus says to her in verse 23, true, wor- true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, it's hard not to think. Jesus is the hound of heaven. The Father is seeking, pursuing her worship. And he is seeking her through Jesus. This is John's version of the prodigal son. Only here it is a prodigal daughter. And the father is seeking her worship. So just like Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15. He is willing to share a a drinking cup with a Samaritan adulteress. So let's look at this. I think it's helpful for you this morning as we look at John 4. And just go ahead and begin in it. And I just want you to see, and I think this is a good outline that I, I, I noted. It's, it's in 4, 1 through 15, you see Jesus as graciously purposeful, relational, and superior. It, it's something we'll see his grace kind of permeate, but you're going to see it kind of develop in a very purposeful way. So we start here in chapter 4. We're not read every verse this morning. We have a lot to cover. So but when you're looking here in chapter 4, you'll no- notice that Jesus finds out that the Pharisees are hearing, the religious leaders are hearing what is going on uh, with his ministry. And so he's going to depart to Galilee. He's been in Judea. He's going to Galilee. If you know much about it, you know the southern region was kind of the, Jerusalem was there. It's the hub of the religious uh, center kind of of the Jewish world and society. It is uh, really, Galilee would be kind of like the, the country people in a way, and then the, 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 the more like, I guess you could say, the, the center again of, of Judea, and the center is kind of found in Jerusalem it, it, of all of their activities and their worship and all of those things. And so uh, there were more zealous, probably a concentrated picture of zealous people there. And uh, so Jesus is facing. Uh, trouble he knows from the Pharisees and you see it throughout the Gospels he's going to be facing those type people that are going to come after him and question him and ultimately say crucify him and so he is leaving he's departing uh, for, for, for one reason his time hasn't come on another kind of front I think it's important to understand that his trip through Samaria was not by accident and his trip at that particular time was not by accident and at the moment that he sat down at that well, that was not by accident. God is working out his plan so that in Jesus, really, the scripture says he does nothing on his own initiative, only what the Father tells him to do. He has been led there through Samaria to meet this woman at this particular time. Now, some people note that it would be odd for Jesus to travel through Samaria, and, and that may be the case. 
there's kind of some thoughts about that. Some some people would say well, the Jews generally just kind of didn't go through Samaria at all. I've read some other things where that for convenience sake they would travel through Samaria, but they would not want to really interact with the people. But I think it's just important just to stop real quick. For some of you, you already know all this, so we'll just make it quick. But just know the Samaritans are basically, if you kind of studied any of Jewish history, uh, there was the kingdom was united, then it became divided. There was a northern region and a southern region. In 722 BC or whatever, the, uh, the uh, Assyrians came in and they took the, the, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and they carried them off. Really, most of the prominent people were carried away. But there were some Jews left there. And then the Assyrians sent some other groups of people into that region. And these Jews that were kind of the less prominent were left in this northern region. And these other people come in and they intermarry. And it, it's kind of a perverted race of people. And they began to eventually uh, kind of, they worshipped in, in, a, in a different way. They didn't go into Jerusalem because they weren't even considered by the Jewish people as Jewish anymore. And so they were kind of this perverted group of people and an unclean kind of people and a, kind of a wretched people. And so that's kind of how they were seen. Uh, <clears throat> the Jews, uh, w- one author noted it this way, he says, uh, not only were they seen um, as a, a children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. And so uh, everything about them was somewhat disgusting. They, they did not want to be around them or be a part of them. Okay, So um, it, it's just one of those aspects I think that people need to know going into this story because we see Jesus interacting with her and it's shocking to a Jewish reader, to the Jewish mind, to the first century church. Uh, a lot of different things would probably still be, they would be considering and wondering about that. Now, um, as we move forward in verses 5 through 9, you're going to see Jesus comes to this town, uh, Sychar. He goes to this place where Jacob's well was there. Uh, he's going to sit down at the sixth hour. He's wearied from his journey. The sixth hour would be like noon. And so he's there at noon at the hottest part of the day. And, um, and what we find out is and when he sits down, he uh, speaks to this woman, and he said, first he sends the disciples away to go get food, and then he speaks to this woman and says, give me a drink. And the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And so she's kind of wondering, like, what is going on with you? How could you ask me something like this? She couldn't imagine a Jew doing this. Now, uh, Again, John Piper, I thought this was interesting. He described it in this way. Jesus, it would be like standing by the fountain marked colored, watching a black woman fill her water bottle, and then for all to see says, can I have a drink from your water bottle? It's kind of like that. It's a a shocking moment. Because you're saying... We understand that. That that makes it kind of hit the ground again for us. We understand that that goes on in many different cultures at many different times. But you notice him here. It, it really, he says, he goes on to say, you know, we, we might read this and, and, and it think, oh, it, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But it really 
is this way. Jews don't use together with Samaritans. They, they, don't, they wouldn't use the same bucket. They, they wouldn't want any part of them in any way tainting them. Some of you may have remembered a time like that in American history, but we see Jesus transcends all these things and demonstrates that red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. You see this desire to see people come into the kingdom. And he reaches out. His, his, his interest is not just in the Jewish world. It will be, transcend that. It will move throughout all the world. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that it said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now when we deal with John, and this is something people don't, I mean, some people don't read their Bibles very uh, broadly and think about what is taking place across the whole of biblical history. But I think it's very important. We did that in the Revelation a lot. I'd say, listen, do not read the Revelation forward, but read it backwards, you know. John's really good about bringing in concepts to help you understand uh, the, the big picture, if you will. And uh, in the Old Testament, God declares at one time in Jeremiah, he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That is, they have rejected the fresh running supply of God and his faithful goodness, choosing instead the stagnant waters of cisterns they themselves prepared, discovering even then that their cisterns were cracked and leaving them with nothing to sustain life and blessing. Humanity, that's, that's what you see over and over with them, right? Is we want to sustain ourselves by our own hands. We want to kind of get to that place where we don't need anything to help us along the way. In a way, it's almost like they have left the true life for something that ultimately will bring death. The prophets even looked forward to the living water that would flow out from Jerusalem. They would speak of that. It's kind of like speaking of his grace and the knowledge of God and the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah speaks of that and the cleansing that comes. All of that stuff is kind of like this living water. It's tied to that. Uh, D.A. Carson says, In this chapter, the water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can that that's what we're looking at here and i think that's kind of a good place for you and i to stop and say are you living as if in your own strength that's really all you need your strength is all that you need in life are you trusting in what your hands can provide to bring you happiness and joy are you trusting in what your hands can provide to bring you happiness and joy are you looking to earth's treasures and pleasures to rescue you. Do you just see the earthly rather than the heavenly. That heavenly things will satisfy. And we have to constantly examine ourselves. It's a very difficult thing for us. 
Verse 11 and 12, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. It's almost like saying, hey, uh, Jacob had to dig the well. Like, how are you going to, I mean, she's thinking earthly. How how are we going to deal with that? I mean, he he had to dig a well. Like, you, you, what, how are you going to provide? You don't even have anything to dip water out. You have no resources available here to do what you're telling me you're going to be able to do. Verses 13 through 15. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It's like he's saying, I am greater than Jacob. And what Jacob's wells provided for you all this time has nothing to compare to what I'm going to provide. The water that I will give him become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking in the natural realm. Natural water. She's thinking like some kind of fountain of youth kind of thing where she would drink it and maybe... She, she, she'll, she'll never need any water again. This wonderful kind of maybe idea that she'll never have to work again or never have to go here and do all of that it takes to provide her for her daily needs of water. It's interesting here. Jesus is going to address the spiritual. And the picture is really, again, in the Old Testament promises, we see in that day of God's salvation with joy of God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah speaks of that. Isaiah also says they will neither hunger nor thirst, which is picked up in Revelation. And then in Isaiah 44, the pouring out of God's spirit will be like pouring out of water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. It's all of this eternal life imagery. Jesus is picking up and bringing this woman and saying, I am bringing you a water where you'll never thirst again. Let me ask you something. Are you seeking to find salvation, satisfaction? Are you hoping in something other than Jesus? If you are, it will not, it will not do what it promises it will do. You will always be in a dry and barren land. It will ultimately lead to your eternal death. If you're choosing anything other than him. Jesus is promising eternal joy and satisfaction. And he is calling her to come to him. Now, I think that's something we struggle with. Oftentimes a tendency to think in the earthly security today. I need security right now. I, I need, I'm looking for that. And, and he is promising an eternal security and eternal rest and an eternal joy. Now... You get into this passage and you're like, man, you know, you see Jesus graciously doing all these things, coming to her, speaking to her. All of that's taking place. And then in verse 16, there's a shift. Jesus is going to confront and comfort at the same time. But I just want you to see that because it's really interesting. In verse 16, if you haven't read this many times, you say, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and tell him to come here. It's like, what in the world? What does this have to do with living water and eternal life and all that. What in the world? What does this have to do with that? Well, when you look at that here, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I have no husband. He said, you're right. 
that you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. And she said, what you say is true. I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I just want you to think about this just for a moment. What is going on here? Jesus is showing her what living water is all about. That, that's really, I think, what's going on. Jesus is saying, listen to me, you think your greatest need is water, physical water? But I'm telling you, your greatest need is that you have a sin-parched soul. You are, you really are, it, it, you are like uh, drying up from a spiritual standpoint. You are famished. You have, you're hopeless from a spiritual standpoint. And you really don't really understand that yet, but I want you to see that. And so what he does is he brings to the surface her like greatest, like, I mean, really, if you were to say, what is she most guilty of in this life? What has she done wrong? What kinds of things is she doing now? He's bringing all of that up. And why is he bringing all that up? He's bringing it up so that she will see her sin and see her need for him. That, that's what she's doing. I mean, that's what he's doing with her. He, he's, I think he's saying in, in a prophetic way, he's saying, listen to me. I'm going to show you the water that you truly need. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show the, the, the deadness inside your life. And I'm going to lift it up. And then I'm going to show you how you can ultimately be healed. Sometimes people in the church think that the most gracious thing in the world is to look past sin. You ever heard people talk about that? We are so we're so welcoming in the church where you say like it's almost like one of those things where people could come to a church for a long time and the church never addressed their sin. And so guess what? They never need a savior. And they think that that's gracious. That's like the most horrible thing you could ever do to someone. Jesus is going to come to her and speak to her about living water. And she only thinks about physical. And so he brings up the real issues of the sin in her heart. And then he's going to come back and he's going to bring forth like this gracious picture of salvation. That comes in Christ. She moves from that to verse 20. We see, she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, some people see it as like her changing gears and being like, hold on just a second. This conversation went way beyond what I was planning on, like when we were starting to talk about stuff. But it may just be that she is now, now, now seeing what he's kind of bringing to the surface, it immediately brings to her mind the issues that she's been addressing from a spiritual standpoint, like if he is a prophet, maybe he can answer this. I've had that happen a lot with people where people come to me, uh, they might even share some sin that they're struggling with, whatever, and then it, immediately this interaction begins to take place and then they start asking me every question under the sun and you start trying to answer and work through them. But it, it's, 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 she's bringing these things up, he's going to help her understand. Now, one thing that's going to happen here, and I think it's just important to understand the Samaritans uh, look back to the Old Testament, but they didn't look at the whole of the Old Testament. They look back to Abraham when the promises were given. He goes in the promised land. He builds his first altar, and they say, hey, this is a place where Abraham built an altar. So we, um, 
And this is kind of the site of Shechem right in that area. And so this is this is kind of the place where we should worship. They kind of had not really followed the, the storyline of the whole Old Testament and saw that Jerusalem was a place that God had set up his temple. They kind of stopped short of that. Uh, in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither uh, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship uh, the Father. And so now he, Jesus is going to take this and instead of just like addressing He's going to address it a little bit later, but instead of like addressing this long kind of theological argument, he comes to this place and he says, listen, an hour is coming where neither one of these places are going to be the center of worship. His response really is given. He announces that Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim are both kind of these places that were kind of the center of worship for both of these people will be obsolete. And then he says that salvation is from the Jews, not the Samaritans. Of course, making that clear, pointing to the fact that that Messiah is coming from the Jews. And third, he kind of shows like um, really some of the conflict that's going on between those two groups. And I think you'll see that as you move through. So Jesus answers her in a very shocking way. And he says, look, there's coming a day where people will truly worship, not at these particular places. But they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we'll see that as you move through this. Verse 22 says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Um, There's kind of this deal where he is pointing out like y'all are standing outside of God's revelation. The Jews kind of have understood all along the way. And they're they're, they're right about that. that. The gospel message is kind of following that pattern where God is presenting his message and ultimately bringing his son through them. In verse 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now here's the thing that's awesome. One of the things. Jesus has come to her. Jesus has pursued her. Jesus is going to bring her to that place where she will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father has sent him. That's what he'll say in John. I do nothing on my own initiative. The Father has sent him there. As Piper called him, the hound of heaven showed up. And he is seeking out those who will truly worship him. And he is going to lead her to worship him by revealing who he is. Really what it's probably helpful for you to say in this is Jesus is the final revelation of God. The true worship of God will be centered on him. He is the one. Jesus is going to be presented. He's already has been the, the true temple. And later he'll be presented as a resurrection and the life. So the crucifixion, the exaltation of Jesus really becomes the turning point here where not only is he's going to be revealed as this The one, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, if you want to know the Father, you have to know me. If you want to understand God, I am Him. I and the Father are one. He's going to say that. But also, from the context, just thinking about the Spirit and what we've been studying out, we understand that Jesus is going to send the Spirit. After doing His work of being crucified, He's raised and He sends the Spirit. And so what's going to happen is, we're seeing the full disclosure of God, and we're seeing how the the spirit works and that's going to be presented throughout john and we're going to say all that is centered in trusting in jesus those who have received the spirit receive the truth about god those two things coming together 
people will believe the gospel and become true worshipers of God. They will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will believe in Him. One of the things about the Spirit the Scripture teaches us is that God is Spirit. God is in, in, invisible, divine, as opposed to human. He's life-giving, unknow, unknowable by human beings, unless the Father reveals Himself to them by the Spirit. Uh, we found out earlier that Jesus is going to baptize us in the Spirit or by the Spirit. And so He is, he is doing this work of bringing dead people to life. So Jesus has to bring that about. And we also know, again, that this spirit is a spirit of truth. He helps us understand and grasp these marvelous things about Jesus to center our lives on him, to trust in him, and to live for him. I think it's important, and this kind of could get you bogged down thinking about the spirit and truth aspect, but I think it is important for you and I to stop and consider what is he saying to her. He is saying to her, listen, y'all are talking about worshiping here. The Jews talk about worshiping here. There's coming a worship centered around me that these people who worship me will worship me certainly empowered by the Spirit, renewed by the Spirit. They've been caused to be born again by the Spirit. Their spiritual eyes are open and they believe in the truth that is found in Jesus. He is the truth. He is the hope. He is what you're to trust in. And all of that, I think, is what we're talking about here. Fully trusting in God in his plan of salvation through Jesus, it's been empowered by the Spirit. Maybe it would be one way to say that. Verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah, when he comes, will tell us all these things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. He has, he has pursued her. He has revealed to her that she needs something that she could, she doesn't even understand it. He has called her, uh, really, to, to understand her sin. He kind of brings that to the surface. And then he's pointed to her that he was the true Messiah, the hope, the salvation that she said she was looking for, ultimately here. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They marveled, and he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. They're shocked. Disciples are shocked that she is really like this one. Like, I mean, that she, he's involved with her at any level. But then you see here that Jesus is like, working in her life and they're watching that unfold and as they see it they're they're shocked by it but she just drops her water jar and runs off into town to share with others what he's done now verse 31 and 32 meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying rabbi eat but he said to them i have food that that you do not know about it's it's like jesus is so satisfied by doing the will of the Father, it, it, it overwhelms him. There's something so 
wonderful and marvelous that's going on. He, he's forgotten about food in this moment. Doing the will of God is the most joyous thing for him. Verse 33 and 34, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now they're just thinking in the physical, not being able to see what's going on spiritually. They can't see this great demonstration here before them. Jesus said, do you not say there are yet four months, then, come, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, again, a physical thing. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Saying you've got to see there needs to be a paradigm shift in your minds. That there's something greater going on here. Jesus is rescuing a people for himself. Can you not with spiritual eyes see? There's a harvest to be taken in. Verse 36 and 37, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Old Testament illusion It's bringing up again that picture of one day that that all of these things will come together. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is both sowing and reaping right there before their very eyes. And then he goes on and speaks to the disciples really about something that they are going to see again. The Samaritan woman is going to go out and sow the seed and bring people to Jesus and we will see them come to faith. Verse 38 and 39, I sent you to reap that for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, but you <clears throat> and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me that all I had ever did. You know, the disciples were able to get to participate in this. Like at first, they were just thinking again on the physical level, just like the Samaritan woman. But they are going to see the marvelous work of God. I was thinking about how often you and I maybe get to see God do a work in a heart. And maybe even at times where like uh, you'll hear people say that person was a great soul winner back in the day, you know. And uh, or so and so like they, they, you know, this person came to faith here and this person came and all this stuff. Sometimes even when I've watched God save somebody and bring them to faith, uh, I've forgotten that I wasn't really that big a part of it, you know. And uh, I was thinking about um, and I told Rick Barker, man, I'm going to use you as an example this week. But I remember um, and some most of you probably know Rick, uh, but when Rick was um, his wife had just passed away, and uh, I had been kind of, I'd known his daughter um, uh, many years before, and uh, I, I really, I'd heard about what was going on, but I'd never met Rick before, and then somehow <clears throat> Rick Ashley called me and said, hey, I went and visited Barker, you need to go talk to him, you know, and uh, he, I think he maybe, he maybe came to faith in the Lord, you know, and um when I started talking with Rick, uh, you know, at first he was just sharing different experiences with me. Uh, and one particular experience of God just kind of moving in his heart and his life. And as we started talking, I, I realized like there were there were a lot of different things that kind of contributed contributing factors to him coming to faith. But one of the things that really months later that I understood was um, that his grandparents, when he was real little, they were like seriously committed to the Lord. And he, he went to church with them. And he would hear them, like watch them reading their Bibles and thinking about the things of God. 
And all of this stuff, all these seeds were being planted and planted and planted. And really, like, the, the, the fruit didn't come forth for, like, years and years. They're gone. They never really got to see it. And it's a beautiful thing, I think, to watch that. Because sometimes, like, we forget that, that we, we don't always get to see all the results of what God is doing. But we know that He is moving and that he is doing this wonderful work. And I think we should ask ourselves constantly, are we passionate about pointing to the one who saved us from our sins? Are we passionate about doing that? You notice in verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world i'm wondering like do you think of your life as like you you know like maybe just kind of you just get by and do your kind of thing and like you'll raise your kids and one day you'll retire and and you'll just kind of like just move along the way and and never really really make an effort to like invest in others so that they might see and believe you ever think sometimes you're so busy in activities that, that, that you never stop and consider the people around you who are in spiritual darkness? And you think, well, maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I won't know what to say. And you think, this woman probably didn't know much to say. All she knew was he knew everything about her, but he had offered her eternal life. And I think for us, sometimes we need to just stop and say, listen, like at the, at the heart of this, Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the prophet. He can see into the hearts of humanity. Jesus is the Savior who makes true spiritual worship possible. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. What do we know about people? They need to be saved from their sins. What are we to do with this knowledge? Share it with others. How long will it take you to get ready for that privilege of sowing and reaping? About as long as it does for someone to listen to that story and then drop their jar and walk back into town. So what about you? What do you do with this? Think what you do with it as you say, Jesus is about sending people out. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit is moving in His people. And He is sending them out to say, there is only one hope. And you have it. So I hope that we as a church will take that and carry it into a dark world and promise people more than physical. There are plenty of churches out there. You know what they're promising people? Physical, tangible. There are plenty of voices in the world out there saying physical, tangible blessing, salvation in these things. But these are the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us a greater understanding of the glorious grace of the gospel that we would see that both religious people and irreligious people need the gospel. 
that we may not understand everything about it, but we do know that He is the living water and that people are in drought and they need it. And whether they even know it or not, they need it. And so we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would send us out and make us useful vessels for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.